Good evening. Well, you made it. Two days. Those of you left sitting are still here. We know from the group meetings, the small group meetings, that some of you have noticed moments of exquisite beauty or simplicity or quietness. Some have noticed exquisite pain and difficulty. And as you heard last night from Noah, welcome to meditation. That's welcome to life, welcome to the planet Earth. That's what's happening here, especially the first couple days. So learning to meet inner challenges and learning how to work with them is part of any genuine spiritual journey. doesn't matter what tradition. Anyone who's done any contemplative practice knows they have had to meet along the way what can be called the demons. It's not a matter of if, if I will run into these difficulties. It's a matter of how will I work with them when they come. There's ways that we can meet difficulties that they turn into something called hindrances or obstacles to our development. There's also ways of being with difficulties where they can become Dharma gateways into deepened compassion and awareness. So there's a poem that's so famous that there's definitely some of you in here who've heard it, but I think there's probably a number of people who haven't heard the Rumi poem, Guest House, so I'm going to say it. Rumi, the great, great Persian mystic, Sufi, he says, This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So these are very steep instructions, if you really listen, huh? I'm sure today, when you were sitting there with whatever the knee pain or the super tiredness or the self-hatred, you definitely just welcomed it in, right? Yeah. It's advanced practice. It is the practice. And it's the general, it, it's generally what the Buddha is also recommending. Meet these difficulties at the door. And when we meet somebody at the door, what we open the door and we meet them, we see, who is this? We know, it's the postman or it's my best friend or it's somebody I hate or whatever. We see who it is. We meet them at the door. So the Buddha says, meet them at the door. And um, he, the Buddha, if you didn't know yet, was a list maker. He made so many lists. I don't know, someone counted them once. Um, so, of course, he would make a list of these general categories of human experience that 
we should watch out for because if we don't pay close attention to these five areas in meditation and in life, they can become a hindrance. So the five are tiredness, low energy, number one. Number two is its opposite, restlessness. Number three, grasping. Number four is its opposite, aversion, pushing away. Could I please... I don't like this experience. Could I, could I get rid of it? I, I don't like you, you know, aversion. And the fifth one is doubt. So these are not the, you know, five mortal sins. And if you have them, you're somehow doomed. They're, they're five things that everyone experiences. And the Buddha recommends when these energies start coming around, well, there, there's a general instruction. That's the most important instruction. I know this is going to come as a big shock to you when I tell you what this instruction is. What would the Buddha recommend the most important thing to do with these five potentially difficult energies? Anybody want to guess? What would be the most important thing? That's a, that's a good word for mindfulness. I know that's a shock. At this retreat, it seems like a rare instruction, but actually, it seems obvious. Oh, mindfulness. But these are places where we tend to lose the mindfulness, and what we actually need to do is turn it up. And it sounds so simple, but in the middle of one of these, if you can actually meet it at the door, name it. Oh, this is doubt. I know this. I know you doubt. We have we're not as likely to be swept away, totally lost, believing, oh, that it's really that doubt is really the truth. So meeting it with awareness, meeting with mindfulness, really learning how to name it. Um, if you have tried the mindfulness and you've named it and you know you've done that quite a few times and this particular difficulty is just returning, it's hammering you down and down and now, you know, you've just had so much doubt, you're flattened, you're exhausted. You can't even find mindfulness anywhere, you don't even care. At that point, you try, oh, the Buddha offered some antidotes. He said, here, you can try these. So, some of them are so obvious, they're really obvious. We've actually talked about some of them for sleepiness and low energy. It's quite obvious, you do what you would do to help raise energy. Stand up or open your eyes a little. Meditate on the... um, Be mindful on the bizarre experience of sleepiness itself. Feel what that's like as it kind of moves through your head and your eyelids. The antidote to restlessness, and we've actually talked about it a bit in here as well, but I'll remind you, a restless mind is scattered it's agitated. Sometimes we, our whole body feels restless, like just... Whoosh. What helps is to bring in the calm, the collecting of concentration. And so you think, okay, I'm going to turn up concentration a little bit. And you can either do that by really honing in on the breath, really concentrating, like, just what's the beginning of this breath, what's the middle, what's the end. Just maybe much more concentrated than before. Another way, someone asked day before yesterday about counting breaths as an example of something if you really feel scattered and restless and you want to help collect, you can concentrate. Um, just do the counting for 
If you can't make it to ten, start with five. Actually, five is quite high sometimes. And then, of course, if you get to four and you're thinking, wow, I'm really doing it, you got to go back to one. See if you can get to five breaths. Then go to ten. So that can help to bring back the calm, which helps that restlessness calm. And also to know that you won't die of restlessness. You just sit there relaxing and making the body-mind more spacious inside can also give a feeling like, okay, there's room in here for all this energy and all these thoughts. Just sort of opening. I'm going to skip the numbers and go to doubt. Doubt is quite a, quite a uh, strong meditation potential hindrance because if you get in it, it can completely stop all your meditation because you're sitting there going, is this the right practice? Is it, am I, are these the wrong teachers? Is this the right place? I, doubt, I don't think that I'm the right person for the right... You know, and you just start wondering this and there's no way you can practice. So very helpful to just remember this or put a little highlighter pen under this. That little word, doubt. Oh, you can just name it. Oh, that's doubt. doesn't mean I have to believe it. Oh, doubt. Noah talked about the antidote last night, which is the opposite, which is to inspire faith. And you might say, well, how do I do that? And he did speak about it beautifully last night. Um, Sometimes if you're at a meditation retreat, it can inspire faith to, to think back and go, what was my original motivation for coming here? There was something inside of me that called See if you can reconnect. Or sometimes you've been inspired by a teaching or a teacher. It's okay if you're spinning in doubt to, to skillfully go and call up that experience, reconnect. And sometimes you've had, as Noah said, an experience, your own experience in life somehow that is so profound that nobody can talk you out of it. And go to it and remember it. It happened. That was my direct experience. Inspire faith to help with the doubt. Another thing that isn't in the Buddha's list, but I found it to be really useful once when I was completely lost in a doubt attack. I just realized that on Sunday at noon I could doubt all I wanted and I could ask all the questions I wanted. You know, the Buddha did say, inquire, ask. But I realized I'd come, in my case, in that I had come a long way to do this retreat that I was at. I thought, why don't I just not go for doubt until Sunday at noon? And then I get to have it all I want. And by Sunday at noon, I had no interest in those questions. They were long gone. There's a bumper sticker you may see around Marin. I don't know where you live, but around Marin, you see the bumper sticker that says, don't believe your thoughts. Do you see that one in your town? It's really useful for doubt. It's a thought. You can just name it doubt. You don't have to go down the road with it. So that leaves the last two, grasping and aversion. And I want to spend the rest of the evening talking about working with these two powerful energies, grasping and aversion. It's very briefly, you know, obviously the the energy of grasping is all the ways that we want and crave and desire. You know, if I only had this double cappuccino, then I would be happy. Then everything would be okay. Well, some of you think it would be, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, it's that believing. I, if that, that'll, that'll do it. And the antidote, 
interestingly enough, actually, I'll get to that in a minute. I'll say a version briefly, because I'm going to go into that much more. Aversion is a huge category because it includes all the kinds of ill will, all the kinds of I don't like you, I don't like myself, I'm judging you, I'm judging myself, I'm, da- I'm, I'm um, afraid, I'm angry. It's a big category, aversion. I think there should be a, several categories for that one. But anyway, it's, it's a big one, aversion. Interesting. Anybody know what the antidote to aversion is? What would you guess? Ill will, the antidote to anger and hate and judgment. Yeah. Loving kindness. kindness. Very good. Love, the antidote, the medicine to all that. And then we'll go um, to the grasping. Anybody know one of the Buddha's uh, antidotes to that? It's not quite as obvious. I mean, it is and it isn't. It's kind of the last thing we would think of as Americans. It's moderation. And that concept is practically like an un-American notion. You know, it's like, moderation, what even is it? Being unpatriotic, I didn't shop after 9-11 and save the country or something. Uh, you know, as Americans, we in so- sometimes are called the addicted society. I don't know if you've ever studied or heard about that, but we, you know, the whole world isn't like us. We happen to have this, thank God, you know, but anyway, we have this, some sort of notion that if we just consume more and faster, if we just get and own and have and and take in more, that'll do it. If I just have one more hit of the fill in the blank, you know, the pot or MySpace or the... Tofu cookie at Spirit Rock, you know, just one more wheat-free, sugar-free, egg-free cookie at Spirit Rock. (laughs) That'll do it, you know. But the interesting thing to notice is, does it do it? it? Does it cause this satisfaction that makes that wanting feeling stop? Because that's what we're trying. We're trying to, to satisfy something. If you really pay attention, explore that, you'll notice what the Buddha noticed, because he was paying very close attention to the really minute workings of the mind. Every time we go for the one more hit, it conditions a craving for the next future hit. And it's true about the tofu cookie, and it's also true about the inner ways, like in, the, like in our minds, we'll all go in these fantasies of grasping... Uh, you know, for pleasure, and we'll just sit here, it will look like we're a little Buddha, but inside we're on this amazing trip. You know? <laughs> I know you know what I'm talking about. So that mechanism for conditioning the next moment of grasping is going on in our mind as well. So there's a, 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 sort, a form of grasping that I'm sure that some of you have experienced. Sometimes one is at a meditation retreat, and one falls madly in love with a total stranger who they've never talked to. They've never even looked in their eyes. But one is convinced, this is it. And I know it, I feel it. You know, it's true. And, and, you're, and, and who knows how many hours or even days or weeks can go into the amazing fabrication of, you know, and, and will it be an outdoor or an indoor wedding? And, 
well, do, I don't really want kids, but they might. And, you know, this whole thing. This person you have never met. And at longer retreats, this can really, I'm not kidding, this can become this amazing thing. So there's, it's so common, we actually have a name. It's called the Vipassana Romance. The two people who have never met or ever talked to each other. And it doesn't require two to tango in this dance. Um, it's so common, we actually have a shortened name for it, which is the VR. And there's the opposite. There's the Vipassana Vendetta, where you just hate that person. You know? Hate them. They walk in the room, you just, you know, you just cringe. Could that person leave during Metta? May you leave. You know, just, it's just a vendetta, and it's all aversion. But I'll go back to the VR and tell you a little about my, one of mine. So this was the first one of my Vipassana, my VRs was many, many, many years ago. And because it was the first VR I had ever come across, it seemed so real, you know. I hadn't, no one had kind of given the VR talk. I didn't know that everybody else was having them all. So it almost seemed sort of harmless and fun until at some point, it was a longer retreat, I kind of realized, wow, I came here to meditate, you know. I've not been meditating. I, and then it was really weirder when it ended, the retreat ended, and then... Um, I won't go into the details, but it was very embarrassing. And I just won't go any farther on that, except that um, I'll just skip the details on that. So, so the next year, same retreat. This is a retreat I went to every year out in the desert. I went back the next year, and at registration, guess who I see? Oh, God. But I had felt so awkward at the end of the last one. I didn't end up talking to this person, so it wasn't what you think, maybe. But uh, there's a long, weird story there. Um, I see him, and it was as though a whole year had passed, and I was happily involved with another person who I ended up marrying, you know, but you know, when a VR doesn't care about <laughs> marriages or anything like that, it's way past that. So anyway, I'm there, and... Um, I see this guy, and it was like my mind was trained to start up. A year later, like, oh, who is he, and where does he live? And, and, and I'm thinking, what? I don't even want to do this. I don't want to do this this year. So I get in the sitting, the retreat's beginning, and I realize, okay, this whole fantasy thing, it is a form of grasping. Why don't I try this thing I've been hearing about at these retreats, this weird notion called moderation? whatever that might be. So I'm sitting there, and the way I practiced it was there'd be the urge to, you know, like we'd be coming in, and there'd be this urge to peek. Where did he sit down in the dining hall? You know, just it's a light little look. You know, no one will know. Everybody's nodding their head. I know exactly how you feel. And instead of just giving in to the urge, I would just have moderation and just not. I would just not follow that urge. I'd want to do it, but I just think, I just won't peek. And then it would be like, I'd notice, oh, he put, he put his shoes down near my shoes. Is that intentional? And then I'd just not go there. And so I'd be sitting, you know, 
God, what if he really is my soulmate and I have to break up with my future husband? You know, and then I'd just call, name it. This is grasping. This is a fantasy. And I'd, then I'd explore, you know. And finally, um, it only took about two days, and the whole thing completely vanished. G- gone. To the point that I looked at the guy about two days later, and I thought, what was that? I spent two, ten good days of my life involved in that. There was nothing there. He looked exactly like all the other strangers in the room. And the whole thing had been this massive fabrication and projection in my mind that didn't exist. And I, I learned so much about the working of my mind and how obsessive and grasping thoughts can be fed or how moderation in whatever, in the mind or in the action, can actually cool down the fire we think I put a little stick on the fire and that's somehow going to f- make it cooler. It doesn't, feeding the fire does not make it cooler. So, tales of moderation. So then, the next story I'm going to tell you took place much more recently. I think it was about six or seven years ago. I was in uh, Thailand to go do some meditation practice with a teacher you may have heard of, Ajahn Jimnium. And... Um, Raise your hand if you've heard or come across Ajahn Jimnian. Okay, if you, if you have. Well, he, for those of you who don't know, he is the abbot of a very large forest monastery in Thailand, and he is a um, very renowned, very beloved teacher in Thailand, and he's actually loved in, throughout different countries in Southeast Asia. He's, um, he's totally a character. He's quite eccentric, and he's really quite a meditation teacher and highly developed in certain areas. Um, he's one of these guys, you know, he has some powers that have developed and he, he now is in his 70s and sometimes if he chooses to sleep, maybe it's a few hours a night. These, when you're there at the monastery, which I was, there's the hundreds of nuns and monks and then there's thousands of visitors who come to, for all kind of blessings and for teachings and stuff. And they'll, not thousands will make lines, but people make long lines. And Ajahn Jimlin will simply sit and relate personally to the people in the lines until the, they're gone. And so if, if everybody's gone to bed, all the assistants and all the nuns and all the monks and all of us students who are 20 or 40 years younger than him, he's still up until the line is gone the next day, two days, three days. He's just up. Quite a teacher. Anyway, he very much um, is in service, and he very much embodies this extraordinary, joyful presence and tremendous kind of metta, very strong transmission of emptiness, if he wants to do that. And um, he has a gift to inspire people that it's possible to experience more freedom, less entanglement when you're in his presence, you can really sort of sense, oh, that's possible. So I was struck when I was with him how much his Dharma teaching and meditation guidance keeps circling around and around and around the same theme, which is freedom is possible through seeing and releasing, grasping and aversion. In every imaginable way and bizarre way, he keeps on pointing this out which is the 
core of people who've known him are laughing. Um, this teaching is the core of all the lineages of Buddhism. It's the core of the noble truth. First noble truth, there is suffering. Second noble truth, the cause of the suffering is all this grasping at the ungraspable, trying to find our happiness, or resisting life. That's the second. And the third noble truth is that if the suffering is caused by all the grasping, freedom comes as we open and let go. So it's the really the dead center of the Dharma. Um, one of my really beloved teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, says, I'll make it very simple for you. Samsara is grasping. Nirvana is non-grasping. So we're really talking about the core dead center of the Dharma. So back to Ajahn Jiminy, and I'm at the at the monastery. You know, I went there to practice meditation. I was already a meditation teacher, by the way. I'm going to tell you embarrassing, another embarrassing story, but this one, it wasn't when I was 25. Um, and it was different than what we're doing. Um, there was no, I, only people who spoke English at the whole place were my husband and I, and I brought a translator And there wasn't a big group like this coming and sitting. I was just practicing in a small hut by myself. So getting ready for this to start and be there for some time, um, I knew I was going to have to go into town on one of these little, they call taxis, little things, putt-putts, to get some stuff. And on the first day before I really settled in, and then this really sweet and beautiful young, about 20-year-old, befriended me, and she, I think, was practicing her English. But she really wanted to take me to the small village, the fishing village where she grew up, and she really wanted her family to meet me. She really wanted them to cook Thai food for me and my husband, and we to meet her brothers and sisters. Please, come to my home, please. And she was so dear, and so it was... It sounded really great, and I needed to go to town anyway, but this would have been quite a little extra, like, day worth of visit. And I felt the grasping for this experience. If you've ever been out traveling, you know how fun it is to go inside of a, of a culture. And it was time to go to my first interview with Ajahn Jimnian, who, by the way, does a fair amount of what we could call mind reading. So I, didn't, I wasn't going to tell him. I was trying to make my mind, should I go to that girl's town and have that adventure and then start my retreat? Or should, you know, I didn't really want to take him through that. So we have our first interview about meditation. And then I'm starting to leave. He said, oh, by the way, through the translator, you may need to go to town uh, before you start meditating. He said, so if you're in the um, seclusion of the forest monastery and you start thinking about how exciting it would be in the town, just note grasping and return to the moment. He said, but then you'll need to go to town, and you might notice there's a lot of smog and loud horns and barking dogs, and you might start wishing you were back at the forest monastery. You might notice aversion. He said, if that should happen, just notice aversion and come back into the moment. And then he says, Deborah, it doesn't matter if you go to town or you don't go to town. 
What matters is if you stay mindful all the time. So I had this funny feeling, and I left. And so I ended up going to town, and there really were dogs barking. There really was honking. I really did want to come home quickly to the quiet. And I thought, okay, he's watching quite closely, isn't he? And so he was always teaching with these, these kind of antics and stories and jokes about grasping aversion constantly. Like one that he said, um, oh, if many people come to the monastery, very good. I like to teach Dharma. But if nobody comes, very good. I like to rest. And then he said, if many people come and they offer food, very good. I like to eat. He's large. He said, but if nobody comes so there's no food, very good. I need a diet. You know? And he's just, it's, it's constant with him. So his um, level of acceptance of life was like a mirror to me. And I could see all my preferences and how I want things like this and this and that. You know, there's just so many ways. And he, he inspired me just in his example to, um, to set an intention. I didn't tell him about this, but in myself, I, I said, okay, my intention at this retreat is to really notice grasping and aversion and practice more acceptance not not go so much, not just go with all my grasping and aversion. So that was my intention. I headed into the meditation, doing what we're doing, sitting and walking in silence and seeing him every day or two talking about meditation. And it was all going along. And then in a couple weeks, early one morning, I was overcome with total maha, mega aversion grasping attack. We sometimes call this multiple hindrance attack. It was sort of total. I suddenly, seemingly from nowhere, and I could go on about, I had been in a very, very quiet open place prior to this, so that's sometimes the next thing can be a bit of a rebound, but I just couldn't stand the heat and the humidity and the smell of some of the food that was all that was to eat and the amazing these different foods and then the screeching clamor of these monkeys going across the roof and the third world toilet event you know <laughs> this hole and in this, in this case this hole because it was also in the same place as the shower had three inches of standing water which mosquitoes which could be malarial were all in and I'm sitting there thinking, God, my mother went to so much trouble to teach me never to go to a place like this. You know? <laughs> I'm sitting there, whoa, get me out of here. So I was in so much aversion. And um, I went into this complete body-mind contraction, really total contraction. And all my meditations were just solid grasping and aversion, which I hardly even noticed they were so total. So the grasping took the form of fantasies of escape to air-conditioned hotels with mosquito nets. <laughs> and, you know, just really detailed fantasies of how would I get, you know, because you can't get out of there, you don't have a car, can't talk, can't speak the language, but I was making up every possible way that I could. And then the aversion was to everything, including Ajin Jimnian and all the sweet people who I had thought were so great up until that moment. Um, 
mostly the aversion was to myself in every sort of tormented way of, uh, you know, like, well, I'm just another American tourist wimp who can't take it, you know, I just need the comfort and the security and, you know, but then I also went on, I think I'm a meditation teacher, are you kidding, this is a joke and I'm a failure, you know, it was major aversion thing. I'm actually talking about it sort of lightly and, and sort of making fun of it, but actually the experience that I was sitting in that little hut, and I'm talking hours and hours of this, was like, for me, some of the thickest hell aversion, just stuck in a, in a hell realm that I'd ever been in. And I'm sure it had to do with how open I'd been and how powerful the meditation was. Uh, it, things get quite magnified and I was in sort of a hell room. I felt separate from everything, including anything I'd ever learned of any value. So I um, somewhere in the middle of hell room is interesting what helped. I remembered the intention. Oh yeah, I'm just gonna really work on grasping an aversion and acceptance. Somehow remembering that brought me back to at least the ability to name this is aversion. I could name it. Once I did that, I remembered, okay, and then you practice like this. And I started working with my bo- on the body level, which we were doing this morning, mindfulness of the body. Okay, aversion feels like this, like tight, like dense, like solid. Just leaving the story as much as I could. And once I got to the body level, and I was finally getting tuning into something rather than just fighting it. Um, I felt this sort of fluttery, anxious feeling in my stomach. So I started meditating, being present with that. And well, there's like anxiety, like oh, this is fear. Wow! And I just started sitting there, and there was just all this fear. And it was easy to attach stories to the fear. And I attached a really big one that I hadn't been dealing with for a couple of weeks, but it, once I was feeling this fear, I remembered that as I entered silence, I heard that the Thai economy had just crashed historically, seriously. You know, people, it wasn't like a little thing, like, can we go on a vacation this month? It was like, can we feed our kids? You know, total economy crash. And then we went into silence, and I, there was nobody speaking English. So I had no idea what it was going on. And I, that day, I was sitting there going, God, what, I wonder what's happened in the world. You know, I wonder if there's any buses running. Will I be here forever, you know? Did this happen in America? Will I ever get home? You know, just sitting, just feeling isolated and contracted and afraid. And then, you know, thinking about what's going on for the people. And somewhere in the middle of this, where I was really now in a kind of fear, and I could feel it in my body, and sitting with fear, for those of you who have, it's hard work. It's really powerful work, but it's hard to sit even for a few moments with real fear. And uh, I remembered the antidote. Oh yeah, I taught this. (laughs) Love. And uh, so even though I felt completely solid and not connected at all to love. I just thought, okay, I'm desperate here. Love to how this feels right now. Love to this solid mass of fear. Love to this little self who's so wrapped up in herself she's worried about her own well-being when the whole country just tanked. 
mercy, forgiveness, compassion. And I just started on compassion, love. And the more I did it, the more it was like, oh, compassion, how hard this is. And as I did that, then the compassion and the love opened. I started really feeling the people, the millions of people, wow, compassion, what they're going through. And then I was aware, once the heart of compassion starts opening as well, just compassion to how vulnerable we all are. And there's no getting around it. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Just compassion to all of us who are seeking, wildly seeking security in an insecure world. Compassion to that. Because sometimes it's hard. And the compassion opened me. It softened me. So I was re- able to reconnect to the meditation so the antidote worked. It took me back. I could be mindful. And the still going. This is still that same day. And this experience I'm going to tell you about took all day and into the night. Um, so I started, after the compassion softened me, I kept meditating. And the aversion and grasping was still coming, but I wasn't so identified with it. And I just kept practicing. And that sort of emotional drama faded and I kept going. And I started practicing really being curious about the subtlest forms of grasping and aversion. So things were getting very quiet. And I would feel just this little, you know, maybe if I make this little adjustment, then this pleasant moment will last more. And I'll, oh, grasping. Or this unpleasant little something if I just do that, oh, that's aversion. And it just got really subtle. So I was just sitting, things were getting quieter and quieter, really practicing just, can I be in this moment just like this? Can I open to this? Just as this is. And as I just kept doing that at this more and more subtle level, everything just got quieter and quieter. Very, very quiet. And sometime in the evening this um, luminous peace just filled my body and mind. And I felt deeply, deeply at ease with everything. And I felt just compassionately connected with everything in this very open space. And I was aware the whole, all the conditions the humidity and all the things I mentioned, the heat, none of that had changed at all. But my relationship to that whole thing had changed. So by very much being really present with the grasping and the aversion, really noticing the reaction to wanting that pleasant, wanting to get rid of the unpleasant, and at the most subtle level, And practicing that way, it helped me for the time being. The I that was the resistant self relaxed. And when that resistant self, the the grasping aversion self, relaxes or releases for a little while, what remains is the same in me as it is in you. It's just open space. It's the peace of being. It's interconnectedness compassionate connectedness 
That's what's in here when that whole thing settles down. So the next few days following that experience was this like um, effortless mindfulness and like metta was the natural state. It was appear- it was so apparent to me. Oh, our natural state is love. It's so up apparent. Walking around, everything. These mangy dogs. Oh, they were so loving. <laughs> and then the most important part of the story and the most important part of this whole experience for me happened a few days later when my ordinary mind began to reincarnate. Just began to come back. There was this ordinary reactions. And it was okay. I didn't fight it. I was still at the retreat. I was still there practicing. And I, and I just had space for, oh, sometimes there's expansion. Sometimes there's contraction. Oh, okay. Because I've been around the bend long enough. There's, you know, there's spiritual experiences that happen or don't happen. They're not particularly the point of it. They're not the point at all. But this other thing of having room for lives, expansions and contractions, that's the thing where there's a sense of freedom. So that was this beautiful thing that that I really um, was grateful for. So I'm sharing this experience not because it's a typical experience or something you're supposed to try to make happen or there's no such thing as a typical experience in here. But I'm sharing it because it's a reminder of the possibility that even dense, solid, hellish aversion can be a Dharma gateway. That's why I went to the trouble to tell you about it. Remember the Rumi poem where he said, be grateful for the uninvited visitors because they may be uh, sent as a guide from beyond. They may be setting you up for some new delight. So to really know that when you're in the middle, ah, there's a way to be with this that's not resistant. And so for us to know when we're sitting here that all the self-hatred and the grief and the rage and the jealousy, the, all the hard, ugly stuff, the pain, is workable when we meet it with awareness and hold it with love. It's workable. And then we keep practicing in this way where we see and release the grasping and aversion, there is a deepened acceptance that begins to uh, open to life. And we find, for everyone in our culture that we've worked with, but particularly in this age group that you're in, probably the hardest part of life to accept is usually ourself. Out of all the possible things, the place where the most judgment and hatred and non-acceptance happens is sitting right on your own zafu. And it turns out that some of the most difficult but most important work we do, especially at this stage of practice, is in opening our hearts to ourself as we are. Learning to meet ourselves with love instead of judgment, which sounds so California, so cliche, so I've heard that 10,000 times. It doesn't matter if you've heard it 10 million times. It's still, this, it's still the assignment. And I have a feeling that 99% of you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And if it was easy, we'd all just say, okay, let's go to the beach. <laughs> it's incredible work. It's incredible work. And as Noah said last night, it's, it's not self, it might appear to be self-centered. It's not at all self-centered. Um, any one of us can look into our own self and see the suffering that's caused by all the pushing and making, trying to make ourselves different or better or other and judging. You know, we can look in our relationships and see the havoc that all that causes and project it. And we can even look, if you want to see it projected out in the world, um, in the larger world. It, it, it's a big thing, uh, all this hatred as it get, when it gets moved around and projected. And it's almost as though there's a belief inside of us that if I, just, if I just beat myself up a little more, that inner critic just gets its way a little more, then I really will be a better person. I mean, it's, it's like some part of us believes it, that, that this will work because we just keep on doing it. And it never works. I want to underline that. It never has and it never will. And it can't. Hatred is not the healer. So there's the great and famous teaching of the Buddha. He said, this is a universal truth. Hatred will never end hatred, but by love alone will it end. So this is a truth that applies to you and your friend. It applies to you and yourself. It applies to the Middle East. It applies... Everywhere, it's a universal truth. Hatred cannot end hatred. What is so much of a relief for me, and I think all of us to know, an enormous gift is to know, wow, it's possible. There's a practice where I can actually learn to meet myself and all of this mass of suffering with kindness, and I can actually practice it in a regular way, over time, even if I don't feel it now, if I just keep practicing, it will open. That's amazing. And I mean, I've got a shot it from the rooftop. Because <laughs> it's not just in my life, but in so many lives, I've, many people I've worked with, I've seen this is a practice that really makes a difference. And it's a practice that we can all do. And what's so beautiful is we begin, instead of meeting ourselves with so much judgment and, and cruelty, when there's kindness or forgiveness, we meet ourselves that way. Guess how we naturally begin to meet others? It's not even like an effort. It's how you are. If, you, if that's happening inside yourself, it's what's available to others. So that in that way, it's a complete gift to the world. So, in our meditation practice, each moment that you're sitting here, and you might think, this is a boring moment, you know, or boredom, okay, aversion. And you notice the aversion, and you can just, ah, aversion. Not have to go with the story. In that moment, you're practicing the art of acceptance, just being with this moment. And in each moment that you're off in some fantasy somewhere, grasping at some pleasant thing and you notice and you say grasping and you just let go and you return to the moment you are practicing this great, great possibility 
of freedom in letting go. And every moment that you can meet yourself with some kindness, you're setting yourself free. So we come to practice and we just keep coming back to these basic teachings over and over. Ajahn Jimnian says, gradually with practice you move through this suffering world, but you're not caught in the suffering. You abide in a peaceful heart and life becomes joyful. So let's sit for a few minutes. You can... Close your eyes. And check what is the truth of this moment's experience. Am I tired? Is there an ache? Am I open? Whatever it is. Can you know it, meet it at the door, just know it's true, and open to it just for this moment? Ah. Whatever is this moment. What if I didn't have to improve on this moment? Notice if you're subtly grasping at a certain special experience. Just notice that. Ah, that's grasping. Ah. And just be here with this experience. And then be aware from your heart center. Any way or a main way that I may have experienced some kind of aversion toward myself today, some judgment, some non acceptance, some should. Just notice that, and for a few moments, embrace that very part of yourself with kindness and with compassion if that part has suffered. If there's suffering and sorrow, compassion to myself. If I can't get it, 
I'm never going to get it. I'm a total meditation failure. Oh, compassion to that thought. Compassion to that. Kindness and compassion to any way we feel separate. May our work of opening our heart to ourself be offered to this world that needs this more than anything. May the heart of humanity open. May we learn to be kind and compassionate to each other.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.